Open your Bibles, if you would, to <coughs> excuse me, Luke chapter 2. This, of course, is the third Sunday of Advent. There's a fancy French word for that. I won't try to say it. Um, I don't know why. Why does only the third Sunday get a French name? Anybody know the answer to that question? Okay. Don't know? Well, the, the, the third Sunday gets a fancy name. The other ones don't. But it's, it's, the, it's the day of joy. This is the Sunday of joy. Um, and, of course, that's a word that is so associated with Christmas. It's on the cards. It's, on, it's in the songs. It's, on the, it's the biggest word in our house right now, right? It's, it's all over the place. Um, as a pastor, to be honest, it, it's probably the hardest Sunday to approach. I mean, what do you say about joy, you know? If you've got it, great. If you don't, it stinks. There's <laughs> not a whole lot. But, the court, you know, there's more to it than that, um, it's, of course, incumbent on us to always say, you know, that joy and happiness aren't the same thing. Um, what the difference is, I really don't know. I mean, they're close enough that they, you know, maybe they're not 100% interchangeable, but I think we kind of have a pretty good idea of what it is. Um, the passage of Scripture that we most often associate with joy is the one that Pastor Joyce has already alluded to, and that's in Luke chapter 2. So we're just going to go ahead and read that part again. This is Luke chapter 2, beginning in the 10th verse. This is, of course, the angels speaking to uh, the shepherds. The angels said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you great news, or good news, of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there's been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word this morning. Father, we thank you for so much, Lord, this, this season, Lord. Uh, you know, we, we started with Thanksgiving in that time of focusing our thoughts on being thankful. And it's like the, the object of our thanks just kind of amps up from there, Lord. We have so much to be thankful for. You've provided for us. You've kept us. Uh, you've brought us through another year, Lord. But mostly, Father, we want to thank you this morning for the birth of your Son. God himself taking on the veil of human flesh, living among us, Lord. Who would have thought such a thing? Well, you did. And we want to be grateful for that this morning. And we want to focus, Father, and be deliberate in a joyful celebration of that event. Help us, we pray, to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the appearance of the angels and telling the shepherds that they had news of great joy, that isn't, the, that isn't the, even the, at the first, let alone the only time uh, the word appeared. Way back in verse 14 of chapter 1 in Luke, the angel spoke to Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, about the birth of his son. And he said, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So you'll have joy, others will have joy, they'll celebrate his birth. Big part of the, of the account. Uh, and then in verse 47 of that first chapter, Mary's response to Elizabeth, she says, my soul exalts the Lord, my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So down in that spiritual part of her being, there was this continual flow of joy in Mary's life. So the idea of joy and of celebration and well, if not happiness, being really close to happiness, it's part of, of the Christmas account from, from one end to the other. But if it's not exactly happiness, what is it? What is joy? And that's what I want to speak to this morning, is that simple statement, joy is. 
And of course, for the benefit of our visitors this morning, this isn't the usual way we approach the text. Usually here at Gateway, we like to take a, a singular passage of Scripture uh, and dig into it, see what the Lord has for us, or move our way through a book. But during the holidays, it's nice to do it a little bit differently, do something different for a change. So this morning, we're just going to focus on this word joy. And the question, what is joy? Well, joy is, joy is, first of all, necessary. Joy is a necessity. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, or rather, I'm sorry, I don't know where I got Hebrews. Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, verse of scripture we're all familiar with. The joy of the Lord is your strength. We know that one, right? Well, the circumstances of that, that verse are really worth talking about. Nehemiah was, of course, a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, right? Persian king, right? And, and the people of Israel had been exiled from, from the land for a long time, generations. Uh, Jerusalem was a mess. The city was in ruins. The, the people that were there were poor. Uh, they, were, they were oppressed by their neighbors. It was a really bad situation. And what's really stunning about the book of Hebrews is Nehemiah reacts to the news. He was cupbearer to the king. So he was a big shot. You know, cupbearer is important. You're going to poison the king. His, his cup of wine is probably the easiest way to do it. So the cupbearer was important. Decided to be somebody the king trusted, and not to participate in his poisoning. Um, he, was big, he was a big shot. And what's really interesting is Nehemiah finds out about how bad things were in Jerusalem. Well, just think about that for a minute. The majority of Jews living in Persia or elsewhere were so disconnected from, from Jerusalem and from Israel, that it was a shock to them when they found out how bad it was. They were totally disassociated with it. And Nehemiah finds out how bad it is. The wall is torn down, and the people are oppressed. It's a mess, and he's heartbroken over it. But, of course, as the cupbearer to the king, you want to come before the king with at least you know, a, a positive outlook. You don't want to be depressed in front of the king. He might think you're trying to poison them or something. So he's trying to make it good, and the king sees right through it, and he asks him what the problem is, and Nehemiah just bleh, he spills the whole thing, how bad it is in Jerusalem. How can I be happy when my people are so oppressed? And miraculously, the king says, we can do something about that. We can rebuild the walls, fix the city, and I'm going to pay for it. That's a miracle. So he sends Nehemiah to Jerusalem to you know, organize rebuilding the wall, right? And in the process of rebuilding the wall, after the wall is rebuilt and the people are celebrating, they bring out the book of the law, which no one was paying any attention to at all. It was as strange to them as it would be to us, to, you know, pull out a you know, Hebrew copy of Torah and start reading it. It wouldn't make any sense to us. It was, it was as strange to them. They just weren't paying attention to it anymore. And when they read the book of the law, the people wept because they realized how far they had fallen from what God required of them. And no wonder our city was destroyed. Well, it's in the midst of that great sorrow saying, oh, my word, we have messed up so bad that Nehemiah says to them, do not weep, for it is the joy of the Lord that will be your strength. Yeah, we messed up really bad, people. We really messed up bad. But... God is here saying, we will rebuild, we will restore, we will again be the people of God. And it's our joy in him that will give us the strength to do that. Isn't that nice to know? Well, not nice, that doesn't even begin to cover it. That we serve a God that when we have messed up and messed up bad, he doesn't say, you fix it and then come talk to me. He said, 
No, you worship me for who I am. You celebrate us for who we are. And through that, you'll have the, the strength you need to deal with the situation. That's, we serve a great God. Oh, we serve a great God. So joy is a necessity, especially in the hard times, especially when we have something hard to deal with. It's absolutely essential that we experience joy because that's where the strength comes from. And that's one of the reasons that first joy is necessary. That's one of the reasons joy is commanded. In the Old Testament, they were instructed to rejoice, to have joy. Uh, First Chronicles 15, one example. They're bringing the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem the second time. What happened the first time? Well, they didn't do it according to the law. Instead of the priest carrying it, they put it in a cart. Most of you know the story. And the cart jostled, and the Ark jostled, and a couple of guys with the best of intentions reached out to stabilize the Ark, and they were dead. Right? So they just stopped the whole you know, parade, rethought everything, redid everything, and now they're bringing the ark in the second time, and they're doing it according to the law. And in 1 Chronicles 15, 16, as they're bringing the ark in, we read this. Then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives as singers with instruments of music, harps, lyres, and loud-sounding cymbals to raise sounds of joy. You guys, your job, over there, I'm talking to you, your job is to be joyful. Your job is to get happy in the Lord. Your job is to celebrate what God has done for us and what God is doing. Now, you may think, that's not fair. You don't know what's going on in their life, David. You don't know what they're dealing with. Maybe this guy's sheepball just died or something. Is it really fair to command this group of people to be joyful? Well, yes, actually it is. Because not only is joy necessary, not only is it commanded, but because it is a choice. A choice. Joy is a choice. Thank you for your help. Joy is a choice. Necessary, a command, and a choice. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul is sitting in a jail someplace, probably Rome, and he's writing to the church in Philippi. Fascinating passage of Scripture. Paul says this to the Philippian church. Now I want you to know, brethren that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. My circumstances, that's a clue, right? There's something going on in Paul's life, which, which isn't good, right? He, he's sitting in prison, right? We can all agree that's not good. Paul's sitting in a Roman prison. But he goes on to say that his imprisonment is a good thing. He says, um, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, so that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So there's some dynamic. We don't know what it was. Um, maybe it was the fact that Paul was in prison, but he hadn't been killed. Or maybe he was in prison, but they weren't being, it wasn't too bad, right? Somehow, Paul being in prison is giving courage to other believers to preach the gospel even more fearlessly. And Paul said, that's great. My job, my concern is that the gospel be preached. And if my sitting in a jail is encouraging other people to preach the gospel, I'm good to go, right? But that wasn't the problem. The problem wasn't just that Paul was sitting in a jail. He goes on to say this in verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife, 
but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am, am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So it's bad enough that Paul's in prison. But there are actually Christians out there, or people claiming to be Christians, that are preaching the gospel simply to cause Paul trouble in prison. Maybe if we preach a lot, you know, the guards will go beat up Paul or something. Again, we don't know the dynamic, how that worked. But there were people out there deliberately preaching the gospel just to cause Paul trouble. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm in that situation, I know where my attitude's going. Right down the drain, right? Bad enough I'm sitting there without those people out there doing all that stuff just to make it worse for me. But what does Paul do? Paul says, only this, that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, so some of them actually may have been just pretending to be believers, just out there making noise to get Paul in trouble, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Even those people trying to get me in worse trouble than I'm already in, I rejoice in what they're doing. I have joy in what they're doing. I choose to have joy. I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. So not only do I have joy now, one could argue maybe that was just a temporary moment. No, I will rejoice, he said. I will continue as an act of my will to celebrate, to be joyful, why? Not just because I want to, because I know the gospel is being preached. Even what's being done to me, even the mean-spirited things being done to me, Paul says, I'm going to rejoice in them because the end result is the gospel being preached. I, Paul says, as an act of my will, rejoice now. I will, as an act of my will, rejoice in the future. Paul has a choice in the matter. He's exercising that choice. Paul is showing us we can determine what our attitude will be in the future to experience joy is a choice. Now, Paul doesn't do it on just, you know, on a whim or just because he wants to. He has a reason for it. He focuses on something. We'll talk more about this. I can rejoice even my imprisonment because I know that my very imprisonment is causing the gospel to be proclaimed. And it's that focus that helps them. So joy, joy is necessary. It's a command. It's a choice. It's also a challenge. Joy is a challenge. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Consider it all joy when you encounter trials. You knew that verse was coming, right? We had to get to that one, right? The, um, the interesting thing about what, Joyce, what, what James says, rather, about joy, when he says, consider it all joy, consider it all... See, I got you paying attention, right? Consider it all joy is the word he uses for consider. It's not the normal word. Normally in Scripture, when we read a word like consider or reckon, like in Romans 6, when Paul says, consider or reckon yourselves dead unto sin, but alive unto God in Christ Jesus. Incredible passage of Scripture. And I haven't forgotten baptism. I haven't forgotten it. We're going to do it. Because what Paul's talking about in that Roman passage is 
talking about baptism and the whole dynamic of in baptism we are buried and raised again. Paul says that in baptism, in being baptized in water, being raised again, we are identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so through that identification in water baptism, immersion being brought up, we identify with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It is therefore logical. It is altogether reasonable to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so the word he uses there, when he says reckon or consider yourselves dead, is logizome, logic. It's where our word logic comes from. It's only logical based on our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's only logical that we consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's just right out of Romans 6. But that isn't the word James uses. Because frankly, sometimes to consider it joy when we're suffering makes no sense at all. And there's no way you're going to logic yourself to that place. So the word that James uses, the word that James uses is igeome. Igeome. And it actually does come right into English. But if you're not a Scrabble player, you don't stand a chance because it's one of those words nobody ever uses. Hegemony. How many used it this week? Hegemony. How many have a clue what it means? If you don't, don't worry about it. It means a government that rules by absolute power. The hegemon is a dictator. Right? Do you guys need to talk? Oh, you do. Okay, here you go. Yeah. All right. It's someone that, I don't even want to know. It's somebody that rules by absolute power. What is James saying then when he applies that word to our attitude. James is saying there will be times in the midst of suffering that you have to assume a dictatorial attitude over your own attitude. You have to say you are going to rejoice like it or not. You have to, by a sheer act of your will, take authority over your own attitude and say, I know it doesn't make any sense, but you're going to be happy in this moment. Why? Why? Because of what it produces. He just doesn't tell us to do it and leave it at that. He says there's a reason for it. As you maintain a sense of joy and celebration in the Lord, even at times when it makes no sense at all, that does something in us. It produces endurance. And endurance, he says, has a perfect sense of completion in us. Yeah, it is a struggle. It is hard. But there's a benefit that nothing else will produce. So even if you have to give yourself some good stern talking to, James says, do it. It'll pay off. Even though sometimes it's an incredible challenge. On the other side, joy is self-fulfilling. Even when you're in a really bad place. A couple of verses of scripture that my mother-in-law used to carry in a shoulder holster. Proverbs 15, verse 13. A joyful heart makes a cheerful face. Which one causes which? A joyful heart makes a cheerful face. You want to change your face, get your heart in a good place, right? 
Proverbs 17, 22. A joyful heart is good medicine. My mother-in-law's favorites, man, she, all the time. She wanted to encourage us. That's what she'd say, right? A joy. So joy, the expression of joy, even if it has to be delivered, is self-fulfilling. It will affect you. There's a whole lot more verses about that in the book of Proverbs, which makes sense because Proverbs is all about wisdom, the right, smart thing to do. Joy can be a contradiction. Can be a contradiction. Um, Paul writes the Thessalonian church, looking back on their reception of the gospel, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of of the Holy Spirit. So even as the Thessalonian church was embracing the gospel, they were suffering for it, and they rejoiced anyway. So it can be a contradiction, right? It's a gift. Joy is a gift. You ever think about that? There's got to be something in the brain that even allows us the ability to experience joy, right? It's a gift that God has created us. With, have you ever seen ants dance? Hey, we got you. No, no. I don't know that ants have the capacity for joy. I have no idea. I don't think they do. We do. That is a gift from the Lord, right? Joy is a gift. Jeremiah 31, 13, talking about the restoration of Jerusalem. The young women will dance and be glad. The young men and the old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. So joy is a gift. The capacity to experience it. The capacity to enjoy joy, that's a gift from God, right? Joy is also a fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Aren't you glad that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, not a gift of the Spirit? You ever think about that? Because the gifts of the Spirit, Scripture tells us, are distributed, right? As the Spirit wills, you know? That guy over there, he has the gift of joy. I have the gift of sorrow, you know? No, no. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a natural byproduct of being animated by the Spirit, being born again. So if we are born again, we should be manifesting the fruit of joy. It is a, should be a natural part of the Christian experience. But here's the other good part. It also requires some maturity, right? So if I'm having a bad time of things and I'm having a hard time of joy, I can, I can know that's just my being an immature jerk. But I'm growing. I'm getting better at it, I hope. Right? It's, part, it's a natural part of being the people of God. It is a fruit of the Spirit. That means it's a byproduct of being indwelt by the Spirit, as all Christians are. Last one. I think probably the most important one. Joy is power. Joy is power. There is an empowerment in joy. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, having fixed our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. For the joy 
set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. To embrace joy is powerful. It enables us to do things we otherwise could have never done. Jesus did not waltz through the crucifixion. His suffering is beyond our ability to comprehend. We don't have in our human capacity even the faintest ability to understand all that he went through and all that he accomplished. And he was able to do it because he fixed his thoughts on a joy, a joy that was set before him. It wasn't some kind of you know, generic sense of, hey, I'll be happy in the future. No, he had something he fixed his thoughts on that enabled him to endure the cross. Ask any endurance runner and they will tell you the key to successfully finishing an endurance run is focus. Focus on, the, on something, the next hill, the next billboard, the end of the race. It is that focus that enables an endurance runner to finish the race, which he is thought, which the author of Hebrews is talking about. Some of you already know this, and I, I apologize for repeating myself, but I know some of you don't. I have run one marathon in my life. One, right? When we were living in Greece, I thought, if I'm running a marathon, it's going to be here, Right? Because you actually get to start in the village of Marathon. Yeah. And you get to finish in downtown Athens at the old Olympic Stadium, right? You get to actually follow the route that the guy ran in 390 BC, where we get the whole Marathon thing from, right? Is that cool or what? To get to run in to that old marble stadium where the first modern Olympics were held, right? If I'm gonna run a marathon, this is, so I did. Run being a very loose word. I'm not going to say I was slow. Go ahead, ask me how slow. I was so slow that by the time I hit the city, they weren't even like stopping traffic anymore. Like the race was over, right? All the people with the flags and stuff to stop cars, they were. So I'm just this crazy guy in my running gear running through a crowded city. That's all it was. And I'm having to dodge cars and stuff. And of course, I'm already exhausted, you know in a lot of pain. I made a deal with my knees, get me through this, I'll never ask you to do this again. It was bad, it was, it was, but I'm, I'm gonna finish. And why am I gonna finish? Because I have the goal in mind of running into that magnificent old stadium. I have that goal in mind that my family is there waiting and they're gonna celebrate, and that is my ride home. <laughs> Our village is another 30 miles away, I do not wanna walk. It was all about focus. That focus is the only reason I was able to finish as, well, I'll say enough, enough said about that. I did finish. That is what this proclamation is about that the angels make to the shepherds back in Luke chapter 2. That's what Christmas is all about. The angels did not say to the shepherds, hey, there's some really cool stuff going on in Bethlehem tonight. You need to show up. It's going to be a great party. They're having a good time. Baby's being born. Everybody's selling. No, that didn't, they didn't go in for a party. They went to Bethlehem, and what did they find? Mary, Joseph, baby, animals. Wise men aren't there yet. Wise men are not there yet. Quiet little manger scene in a stable, right? Nothing phenomenal except what this baby means. What this baby means for the future. For the joy set before them. 
that joy placed before them. Something is happening in Bethlehem that would give them reason to have joy in every circumstance they would ever face moving forward. Every situation, every challenge, every problem those shepherds ever faced from that moment forward, they saw in a whole new light. Or they had the choice, I should say, of seeing in a whole new light because they'd seen their salvation. They knew where the story ended. They knew where their story would end because of what they had seen. Whatever else may be said about joy, a deliberate focus on the reality of the incarnation, God taking on the veil of human flesh, that gives us that focal point the author of Hebrews is talking about. Something set before us that allows us to be joyful in any set of circumstances because we have a choice, because we have control, because we can determine what our attitude will be, because it's a necessity, because God instructs us to be joyful. We can do all that and we can be empowered by that because of what the incarnation means. There is a point, an end point in my destiny that is glorious, regardless of what's going on right now. There's an end point in my destiny that is glorious because of the child in the manger. And I can celebrate that. Father, I thank you, Lord, for them. I thank you, Father, for things like the wreath and the candles, Father, because it brings us to a point of focus, Lord. We get so distracted in life, Lord. we got so many things pulling on our attention, Lord. Sometimes even the holidays themselves with all the stuff going on, there's so much that can distract us, Lord. Lord, give us the wisdom as we celebrate joyfully, Lord, this Christmas season. Give us the wisdom to focus on that singular reality of God himself entering human flesh, our world, our existence, our difficulties, our challenges, Lord. And in the process, giving us a focal point in eternity, Lord, that we can, by choice, celebrate, regardless of what else is going on. We need to do that, Lord. If only for our own benefit, Lord. We need desperately to do that. Help us to that, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.